This week on Monday, we celebrated the federal holiday for Dr. King, and last week on uh, Tuesday was his actual birthday. And so I took the occasion last time, last week, a week ago, to explore the theme of the connection and the um, similarities between uh, our core <clears throat> Dharma teachings and practices on the one hand and the life and work of Dr. King on the other. <clears throat> and I wanted to continue that exploration <clears throat> in, in this session. <clears throat> so last week I explored the ways that there are um, similarities in terms of three themes. The first was the sense of wisdom or understanding. The second was the centrality of love or metta practice in Buddhist tradition, the sense of the kind heart. And the third area that I looked at concerned integrity or the sense of the wholeness and coherence, authenticity of one's life. And I looked at that in terms of the central themes of Dharma practice and also the life and work of Dr. King. And I want to continue the exploration today and go somewhat further. And so first I want to do a brief review of what I explored last time, of those three themes. Uh, secondly, and really in the, actually in the review, expand somewhat the, the teachings on those uh, core themes, particularly the first two. What's the dimension of wisdom, understanding, and what's the, how do we cultivate the, the kind heart and, and understand the centrality of the kind heart. So secondly, expand somewhat the uh, sense of teachings and practices. And then thirdly, uh, maybe for the second part, explore what we might call a kind of a dialogue between, as it were, the Buddha and Dr. King. <laughs> we can imagine them, uh, as it were, talking to each other and learning from each other, I would say. And if not, if that seems uh, too pretentious to think of the fully enlightened Buddha needing further development, then we can talk about um, contemporary Western Buddhists having a dialogue with Dr. King. Surely there's room there. <clears throat> so, and, and I think that can point to something very much needed in our time, which is to combine the core of traditional Buddhist practice with what we can learn from uh, the life and work of Dr. King and indeed of other, I would say, um, spiritually grounded uh, social activists. There's something very important for our time in that integration of the two. So that's what I'll point to. And along the way, I'm going to also have a, a brief uh, appearance through a recording of Dr. King himself. So he will 
He will be present a little bit later. <clears throat> I mentioned a little bit last time of uh, the, the facts of Dr. King's life, being born in uh, 1929, coming out of a family that was deeply rooted in the black church, his father a minister, his mother uh, an organist, a member of the, uh, the choir, uh, going to college, Morehouse College in Atlanta, I think, uh, at age 15. Uh, going at age 18 to uh, Crozer Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania, uh, where he uh, studied, received his, uh, uh, I guess, degree as a minister, and then later going to Boston University, getting a theology degree, actually a, a doctorate in theology uh, from Boston University, and then at the age of 26, taking his first uh, ministerial position at a church in Birmingham, where he was called in many ways to uh, be the face of the movement, partly because he was a fresh face, partly because he was very, very capable being the spokesperson for the, I think, uh, over a year uh, Montgomery bus boycott to protest uh, segregated uh, transportation, and then moving on to a number of different uh, movements and positions, being part of the Southern Christian Leadership uh, Conference, SCLC, and engaging in a number of different uh, movements, you know, uh, mostly in the South, but also later coming and being part of movements in Chicago and going to other northern cities, uh, coming back to the south most of the time. And then we know uh, last time I played the, a recording from his famous uh, Beyond Vietnam speech given in New York April 4th, 1967, his coming out against the Vietnam War, his speaking about the what he called the uh, triplets of poverty, racism, and militarism that, he's, that were almost like the equivalent of the Buddha's three poisons of, of greed, hatred, and delusion, that these were the enemies in a way. And uh, a year uh, to the day later, April 4th, 1968, being assassinated. Uh, and uh, at the age of 39, 39 years old. So I focused on these three themes of wisdom, the development of the heart, the centrality of love, of metta, and then integrity. So a few brief words on those, and I think we'll, then we'll hear some from Dr. King again, and then I'll go on to this imagined dialogue. So um, last time I talked about the, the central understanding we could say the central wisdom theme being the teaching in the Buddhist tradition of dukkha and the end of dukkha, and in the uh, work, life and work of Dr. King and Gandhi, I would say the teaching of nonviolence. And I would say both of those teachings share the same heart, <laughs> expressed in different ways, but sharing the same heart, which in a simple way 
can be expressed as I have experienced pain and I will not reactively pass on the pain further to myself or to others. That's it. That is the central teaching. That's the, I would say, that's the central teaching of the whole practice, 2,600 years of Buddhism. That's my view. Others may disagree with that, but that's it. We have, uh, no matter, and it really can be broadened to say that uh, the, uh, the uh, focus of our practice is to learn how not to be reactive, particularly when something difficult, unpleasant, challenging occurs, but rather to learn to be responsive, to respond out of freedom, awareness, and mindfulness moment to moment, particularly when something challenging or difficult happens. So I mentioned last time this core teaching of the Buddha uh, called the teaching of the two arrows. Buddha said that at times we have difficult experiences, unpleasant experiences. It's as if we are shot by an arrow. It could be difficult physical experiences. It could be difficult emotional experiences. It could be difficult um, uh, thoughts, narratives, you know, the way we sometimes when difficult things happen, we have negative scenarios of the future, or we blame and judge ourselves or others. And so the Buddha said in all of these ways, it's as if we shoot, we have, we are shot by an arrow, we have an unpleasant experience. Again, it could be uh, Think in our thinking, it could be our emotions, it could be physical, it could be interpersonal, it could be social, it could be injustice, unfairness at work, in society. In all of those, we sometimes simply have these experiences occur. We could say they're givens. You know, we didn't choose them, but they occur. This is like being shot by the first arrow. And the Buddha says, in having those kind of experiences, someone who is a non-practitioner, doesn't know anything about practice, is no different from the deepest spiritual practitioner. Everyone at times experiences difficult, unpleasant, challenging um, situations, thoughts, emotions, physical experiences, interpersonal experiences, social situations. And so the aim of practice, when we talk about uh, the aim being the end of dukkha, it's not simply, it's not to get rid of the unpleasant experiences, but rather, the Buddha said, we typically, when we're not mindful, unconscious, conditioned, have a certain level of unconscious and ignorant material in our being, in our conditioning, whether it's uh, family history conditioning, personal, history conditioning, social conditioning, more universal conditioning of being a human being, we all tend, when the first arrow is there, to shoot a second arrow, as if that would help. And that's going to be the emphasis for the Buddha and for, I would say, the equivalent teaching from Dr. King. What does that second arrow mean? What does it look like? Because I have physical, 
physically unpleasant experiences, I tense around them, maybe I blame someone else, I blame myself. I can't just simply be with the experience and try to have a wise response. And we can see this most clearly, or maybe more clearly, with difficult emotional, interpersonal experiences. I have something difficult happen to me, and I, you know, I have frustration, irritation, anger, whatever. And in relation to that, I don't like it, and I maybe blame myself, I blame someone else, I say something negative, mean, I develop negative scenarios. We know all that. Something challenging happens, I get a difficult work evaluation, my partner uh, and I have a difficult interaction, I have a challenge at work, and because of the first arrow, I shoot the second arrow thinking somehow that that would help. Right? My partner says something, uh, the interaction takes 10 seconds, I shoot the second arrow for the next three days. Is that familiar? Right? And so, um, and this is also the case socially. And so, uh, I like to interpret Gandhi and King as teaching something very similar. We have received, as it were, the first arrow of pain and oppression. We will respond to that first arrow, but we will not shoot the second arrow. It's one where they don't use that language, but I think nonviolence can very much be understood as responding to what's painful, difficult, oppressive, etc., very firmly and fully, but not simply in a reactive way. That, you know, in a phrase that I that I like, passes on the pain to others and often to you know keeps it with ourselves. I think that's the core wisdom teaching and the guide to practice to learn how not to shoot the second arrow and yet to be responsive. Now, actually, on Sunday, some of you were there, we explored that theme for a whole day. And there are a lot of complexities to it. There are a lot of complexities to this teaching and how to practice it. Uh, you know, I think the main complexity that I find is that often when we become reactive, we actually, there's actually something important that we're noticing. You know, that we're noticing something really uh, crucial uh, in our experience. So we may, someone may say something to us that is uh, mean or wrong. Someone may actually uh, not keep an agreement and I become reactive because of that we're not called upon to forget that an agreement wasn't kept, right? We're not called upon to just uh, ignore things that are not right or that are unethical or that are problematic, right? That's the, that's the complexity. How do I respond in a non-reactive way which doesn't simply turn to passivity and let everything go? We, we sometimes call that spiritual bypassing, right? that you use spiritual language to actually not deal with something. Right? That's not what this is about. And that's the complexity. And there's a lot, we, we could take 
uh, we could take weeks to explore the different complexities and how to deal with them. Basically, how do you respond fully? How do you respond when something is wrong, but uh, non-reactively? Another way of saying this is that when we're reactive, we often have something that has that actually is related to something important that gets mixed up with our reactivity. It is important that uh, the agreement wasn't kept. It is important that maybe someone was acting unethically. It is important that there was injustice. How do I respond, but in a non-reactive way? Not easy, and we could say a lot about skillful speech, skillful ways to work with the mind, with the emotions, skillful ways to work with conflict. That would be the six-month curriculum, which might be a good idea. But that's the guidance. And so the guidance for practice, uh, let me say a little bit more. So can, can you see how that teaching is very similar, if not close to, identical to the teachings of Gandhi and King? We have received pain, we will respond, we will not shoot the second arrow, but we will not simply turn our, turn our uh, faces away. We will not turn away, we will respond fully. And so for King and Gandhi, it was said, we want to adhere to an approach in which we do not cause injury to our opponents. And later I'll say that actually for both of them, the intention was to turn opponents into friends. Amazing intention, right? Amazing vision. The vision of the beloved community, the vision of reconciliation. We have these profound differences, but I want, I want to act in a way so that I don't alienate you in some uh, final way. We'll come back, I'll come back to that point. So for us, how do we practice uh, not shooting the second arrow? How do we practice non-reactivity? I gave a few suggestions last time. And how many of us actually focused on practicing non-reactivity last week? Okay, so some of us. That was the invitation. And uh, a number of people who are not here were practicing non-reactivity deeply. And maybe we're so deeply into it that they're not here today. Perhaps. So uh, one of the ways that we explored practicing non-reactivity was just to track for it, to notice it with mindfulness when it comes up. And so one practice that's actually quite a powerful everyday practice is to say in the morning, let me notice during the day when I become reactive. Let me notice when I start to get reactive at work, when I go back on something that happened and start being reactive. And the invitation is to be mindful of it and study it. Know our own patterns. Know what my top five patterns of reactivity are. And know how they work. Know what tends to trigger me. When do I get, I tend to get triggered by this, right? And I, you know, and for me, I think I was talking about this on Sunday. Uh, I, I noticed that some of my patterns of triggering, for example, occurred when I thought that someone didn't really listen to what I was saying or kind of ignored me. That's very common, right? Many, anyone relate to that? Yeah. <laughs> okay, very common. You know, that, uh, you know, the, 
the, the, the deep human yearning to be understood, heard, listened to, etc. At least for me, I noticed a lot of what I was studying at a certain point when I was studying reactivity a lot had to do with that. And so we want to know what tends to trigger my reactivity. Um, a very crucial uh, aspect of studying reactivity is to know the level of reactivity that's there in terms of level of intensity. Because we can only explore our reactivity when it's in the workable range. And sometimes our reactivity is, what, off the charts. Anyone ever had off the charts reactivity? Okay, a few of us. Okay, a few of us. And we can act, but it's, so it's very crucial to know what the level of reactivity is and to know whether it's in the workable range where we can be mindful of it and possibly responsive. If it's off the workable, out of the workable range, then we have to have some tools that help us regain balance. Really, really crucial to know the difference, right? Uh, because if we try to be mindful when it's too much, actually we're not really going to be mindful, we're just going to be lost. So very, very crucial practical distinction to know. And to have in our repertoire a few ways to come back to balance. Maybe, you know, do something physical, take a walk, talk with a friend, some meditative practices can be helpful, particularly something like loving-kindness, some of the heart practices that have, can have a very, very strong energy quickly in that work with concentration, so you can just sort of block out what's happening. That is actually skillful sometimes to not be with what's present. Okay. So second level meditation instructions. When, when the level of intensity is too much, don't be with what's present but try to shift out of it. Very crucial, and have some ways to do that. So, see ways of not shooting the second arrow. One, one also one way of practicing is to really, uh, when we know that something difficult has happened in our lives, look out for the tendencies to shoot the second arrow. So it's almost like, when we know that we're in a hard place, know that it's very likely that we will shoot the second arrow in certain ways. We'll blame ourselves, maybe. We'll blame others. We'll be hard on the people close to us. We all know that, right? But if we actually can tell ourselves, I'm in a difficult place, I'd likely to shoot the second arrow, that can be of tremendous help because we might not do it so much. We might hold ourselves with compassion and so forth. And so, again, this is where it's sort of a segue to talk about the second theme, which is that of uh, the centrality of love, metta, the kind heart. And again, also very, very useful to bring in when the first hour is present, especially when things are quite difficult. So the second theme, very, very central. We, we know that we have this core practice of the kind heart. In the, uh, as given by the Buddha, the Metta Sutta, this amazing teaching. I read from some of it last time, and I, I brought again the core text here. Uh, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness. And it goes on to say, wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, may all beings be at ease. May one radiate kindness over the entire world. 
That's the teaching. That's what we're invited to do. You know, I think of a Tibetan teacher uh, named Kala Rinpoche who came to Boston when I was there. He went to the Boston Aquarium. Anyone been to the Boston Aquarium? Wonderful place. Well, they, you know, as if you've been there, you know that they have the fish uh, uh, swimming laps. <laughs> they have this huge aquarium, and the fish just kind of do laps, you know. And, you know, all the fish are there, you know, the small fish, the big fish, the, if I remember correctly, the sharks do laps too, along with the other fish, right? It's pretty, pretty interesting scene. So, and uh, Kala Rinpoche went and started tapping on the aquarium. And they asked him, what are you doing? And he said, I want to get their attention so I can offer them loving kindness. <laughs> yeah. Which is interesting because I've, I've actually been, there's a little bit of a non sequitur, but I've been uh, bringing uh, loving kindness practice into my own personal lap swimming. A little bit really, but anyway. And so, but for Kala Rinpoche, presumably this was his default way of being that the sense of loving-kindness was there much, if not most, or all of the time. That's the aspiration, right? Can I bring that sense of kindness and have it be there? And it's taken again to be at the core of our being. The reason this is not ultimately, not ultimately a hard practice is because this is who we are. The, all the other stuff is more like clouds over the sun. And the loving-kindness is, is there in our deep heart. And again, there are teachings on this, that it's said that there is a quality of mind and heart which is brightly shining, and which is always brightly shining, but it gets covered over. Even for people who've done very negative things, they have that aspect of heart. Again, that will be a segue with Dr. King, you know, who, you know, in more in Christian language, he says, everyone is born in the image of God. You know, even done quite negative things. So again, in, um, in the Christian language, it would be to say, we deeply criticize what is wrong, oppressive, unethical, but we don't, we don't condemn the person, we condemn the action. That would be very much followed by Dr. King, who says, let every action come out of love. Let every action uh, be there with love. Gandhi said that uh, nonviolence is the law of our being. It's based on the assumption that human beings are one and that every human being responds to the advances of love. At least ultimately. <laughs> Maybe not the short term and so forth, but but that, that is our nature, that's, that's really the teaching. And so Gandhi wanted all of the, his action to come out of love. He said, I have decided to stick to love. Love is ultimately the only answer to the problems of humanity. I have decided to love. If you are seeking the highest good, you can find it through love. So the centrality of this practice and so again, the practice that was invited was one of metta, or in some way connecting with the heart. You know, and I think 
a very simple, basic way to do that that I think can really be effective is to do some kind of heart practice 10 or 15 minutes a day. I find if it's really done regularly, and maybe more, it becomes part of the fabric of our being. And then maybe you wake up in the middle of the night, starting to shoot the second arrow, and you can go to metta, go to the heart practice. And so uh, I think we can have the heart really be there and help guide us, uh, be supported, I should say, by that practice of not very much every day. It goes a long way. I think the key is, though, to do it every day. And so that was, you know, uh, one way to practice is just to keep cultivating that sense of metta, the sense of loving-kindness. We can also, maybe some of us are drawn to other practices, one of compassion, which is, you know, is a very, is a very good adjunct when these, the first hour was present. Compassion can be very simple three-part compassion practice developed by Kristen Neff, who's written a book on self-compassion, would be uh, when something difficult is happening, number one, know that it's hard. Say, you know, say to oneself, this is hard, isn't it? Yes, it's hard. Right? No, number one, say it's hard. Number two, know that it's part of the human condition. Other people experience that. And say something like that to oneself. And then part three, offer oneself some kind words, you know. This is hard. Let me not make it worse. Let me not shoot the second arrow. Or this is really hard. It's a hard stretch. Let me ask for support. Or may I be as skillful with this as possible. So very simple three-part self-compassion practice. And so we might be drawn to metta, loving-kindness. We may be drawn to compassion or forgiveness. Uh, there are a whole family of practices that cultivate the heart. Um, when I teach retreats on transforming the judgmental mind, we bring in seven heart practices. And one of them, just doing one of them is adequate. Others might include cultivating joy. And you can think, I think of how King, in his practice, uh, you know, being really based in the church, there was the singing. There was always the singing and the prayer, but particularly the singing that would bring uh, a sense of joy back, no matter what was happening. You know, so can we find ways to cultivate joy uh, and have that be more prominent? Forgiveness, a very, very crucial heart practice. You know, King said, forgiveness is not an occasional act, it is a constant attitude. Again, very much related to that understanding that uh, we, in a sense, we question and may criticize the action, but we don't condemn the person. Right? That, that distinction that, that he was making. It was very striking also that uh, King had a very large amount of empathy that was uh, quite often expressed towards people who would seem on the surface to be his opponents. He very often expressed empathy towards uh, white working class people. You know, he said, he said once that, he, this is his language, the white man's personality is greatly distorted 
by segregation and his soul is, is scarred, is greatly scarred. And he said that the work he was doing was for the bodies of black people and the souls of white people. Because he said that the, he used the language, he said the souls of white people are deeply scarred by thinking they're better. You know, and by, by what we would now call white supremacy. Right? It's a deep, deep um, confusion and um, lack of seeing of themselves and others. And so he, he would sometimes talk. He talked of, uh, he spoke of having talked with, sometimes with the, the white jailers when he was in jail. And he wanted to know the facts of their situation. And one of the sermons he gave uh, just two months before his death, there was a sermon called The Drum Major Instinct that he gave at his uh, father's church in Atlanta, Ebenezer Baptist Church. And he said how he had talked with uh, white jailers. And he said that, that he said their psychic investment in their whiteness was self-destructive because they were living on the satisfaction of their skin being white. But he learned about their income, he learned about their economic situation, he said, in reality, they were as bad off as many black people, right? And he could see, you know, what we would call the, uh, what, the uh, use of especially working class white people as pawns, as pawns in the game, you know. So there was a song by Bob Dylan, wrote a very powerful song to that effect as well. He said, you think you were somebody big because you were white, but in fact you can't send your children to school. Right? So there was a sense of empathy and non-blaming. Right? That was very, very powerful heart practice. And then there was a sense of integrity that I, that I spoke about and I gave the, uh, we, we played some of the recording of Dr. King uh, um, breaking the, his silence on Vietnam and talking about the anguish of doing that. He had been silent, partly strategically, so that he wouldn't alienate President Johnson and could get through some civil rights legislation, but he knew that in some sense this wasn't right. He had he actually been against the war for many years, but he, you know, he really showed that he was about integrity and consistency of his teachings. And this, you know, his speech against the war on April 4th, 67, came at great cost to him. You know, that uh, I, I mentioned last time, at the time of his death, his, his uh, disapproval rating in the country was at 75%. And a lot of it was because of the war of Vietnam. After he gave the speech, Life magazine said that the speech is demagogic slander that sounds like a script for Radio Hanoi. We heard that last week, right? The Washington Post said King had diminished his usefulness to his cause, his country, and his people by that. And yet he, he spoke and he kept with that, that theme. It also cost him, he wasn't popular in the black community for the same reason. Right? So 
He wanted that integrity. And so the practice that we gave last time was to see, to be sensitive. Where am I in my life not consistent with my deeper vision and ideals? Where is that the case? So I thought it'd be good to hear a little bit of the, uh, from Dr. King himself. This, this is from, I'll be playing himself, him reading his letter from a Birmingham jail. That again, uh, some of you may have read that or heard that. Okay, so are we ready to do that? I think it actually, okay. Thank you. 
amusement park and see her developing an unconscious bitterness toward white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who's asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and color. When your first name becomes nigger, your middle name becomes boy, however old you are. And your last name becomes John. And your wife and mother are never given the respected title misses. And you are hired by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are Negro, living constantly at tiptoe stands, never quite knowing what to expect next and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments. And you are forever fighting a degrading and degenerating sense of nobodyness. Then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. You assert that our actions, even though peaceful, must be condemned because they precipitate violence. Isn't this like condemning Jesus because he is unique God consciousness and never ceasing devotion to God's will precipitated the evil act of crucifixion? I have no despair about the future. I have no fear about the outcome of our struggle in Birmingham, even if our motives are at present misunderstood. We will reach the goal of freedom in Birmingham and all over the nation because the goal of America is freedom. We will win our freedom because the sacred heritage of our nation and the eternal will of the Almighty God are embodied in our echoing demands. was from 1963. I think I will just only begin my imagined dialogue between the Buddha and Dr. King uh, for reasons of time and wanting to have discussion and continue with most of it next time. I have a lot I, have a lot I prepared. Uh, the short version would be <clears throat> that there's something very uh, powerful <clears throat> that has never existed in the world before about having the best, as it were, of what we inherit from the Buddhist tradition, practices we pointed to, organized around those themes, and taking the uh, understanding of how to respond to social issues and social crises. One way of saying it is that we could that there is a almost intuitive call to integrate these models of inner transformation and more outer transformation. And they seem to be for many many people. This is a deep uh, and resonant vision 
uh, that's very much needed in our times. Uh, and maybe I'll, I'll finish and say more about that vision next time. There's a, there's a beautiful uh, passage that was written in 1961 about this very theme by the uh, poet, uh, Buddhist poet Gary Snyder, who's also, as many of you know, been an ecological activist especially, uh, lives in California. He said, historically, Buddhist philosophers have failed to analyze out the degree to which ignorance and suffering are caused or encouraged by social factors, considering fear and desire to be given facts of the human condition. Institutional Buddhism has been conspicuously ready to accept or ignore the inequalities and tyrannies of whatever political system it found itself under. The mercy of the West has been social revolution. The mercy of the East has been individual insight into the basic self-void. We need both. They are both contained in the traditional three aspects of the Dharma path. Wisdom, prajna, meditation, dhyana, and morality, sila. Wisdom is intuitive knowledge of the mind and love, of the mind of love and clarity that lies beneath one's ego-driven anxieties and aggressions. Meditation is going into the mind to see this for yourself over and over again until it becomes the mind you live in. Morality is bringing it back out in the way you live through personal example and responsible action, ultimately towards the true community of all beings. So it's pointing towards that integration, right? And saying that for various reasons, uh, Buddhist vision has largely been there for dedicated practitioners who go very deeply, often uh, monks or nuns or hermits or yogis, and not really brought into the larger social world. In large part, even the idea that one could change the social world is a very fairly new idea historically. Yeah. That most societies were seen to have been, you know, what, grounded in, that the power structures were grounded in the way things are. Very recent that we could have a sense of it being different. And so, but also, uh, again, I think I'll say more about this next time. The uh, Western traditions have had their deep contemplative aspects largely marginalized for about a thousand years, I would claim. You know, that the deep contemplative and mystical traditions have not really been, not at all mainstream in uh, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, I would say. Uh, some of you know, anyone know Jacob Needleman, who uh, I think is emeritus professor at San Francisco State? He wrote a book called Lost Christianity. And there was a double entendre. It meant that Christianity has lost its contemplative dimension, its meditative dimension. And because of that, it's somewhat lost. Right? That was his claim. You know, and uh, I remember having Jewish friends who wanted to find uh, Jewish mysticism. And they searched actually almost all over the world until they found some teachers in Israel who were 
conveyed the ancient Kabbalistic teachings. And so one could make the claim that the contemplative traditions, these deep inner traditions, have been um, marginalized. They're still there. You know, I mention often that I go to the Abbey of Gethsemane, where Thomas Merton was a monk, who has been a representative of that contemplative tradition in the 20th century. It's still there, but it's not easy to find, and you won't find it in churches and synagogues, largely, right? And so it's, you know, that inner, deep inner dimension, many of us have been drawn to Buddhism because we didn't find it in the Western traditions, right? If we had, if it had been there, we wouldn't, Spirit Rock wouldn't exist, right? Very, very, very possibly. But it wasn't there, and we find it very accessible, also relatively non-dogmatically presented, right? And so uh, I think what I'm pointing to is that there's this natural integration of the deep, deep inner teachings and practices of, that we get from Buddhist tradition and of the approach to social action and social change responding to the needs of our times, the crises, that we find in a, a fairly well-developed form in the nonviolence of Gandhi and King. And my, my suggestion is, or the themes of the, the talk were that at their hearts, they're, they're the same or they're similar. Another way of saying it, they share the same heart, which I've outlined in terms of wisdom, understanding, the centrality of love, the kind and wise heart, and then integrity. And so I think, again, I'm promising a little bit, I'll say more about how we make that integration. I think I'll do that next time. But that's, I think, what is a natural uh, implication of seeing how much a shared heart there is in these two approaches. Okay, so let me close by just inviting you to sit for a moment. And if you, how many of you would feel drawn to continue with these practices of working with the two arrows and developing the heart? Yeah. So let's just invite yourself to see how might I do that in the next week? What would be meaningful to me out of what was named? Maybe looking at integrity as well. Thank you, thank you very much. Let me invite any uh, reflections, questions, um, thoughts. You can, we can use the mic. Uh, the mic will be brought to you if you have if you have a thought, question, or just a request for clarification. Also, that's possible. Could also just be stating how you feel. Very good.
um, in a large type of way the two poisons manifest themselves, especially here in the United States. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, great, great, great point. That could be, that could be, uh, of course, a talk or an exploration in itself. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the roots of uh, unskillful action are greed, hatred, and delusion, the Buddhist tradition. And the greed lines up with uh, the economic system and poverty and the haves and the have-nots. And the second is hatred lines up with racism, other things as well, but racism. And then the third in the Buddhist tradition is delusion. Uh, maybe we could say that also uh, militarism line up maybe with both greed and hatred. And delusion keeps it all going, right? Because we don't see clearly. Yeah, so thank you. And so probably I was thinking, again, if we <clears throat> follow that lead with greed, hatred, and delusion, <clears throat> then we would have to, I think there's so much that will happen in the future <clears throat> to develop our sense of practice. Because you think, what, what are, you know, what are in, inner practices to work with greed or to work with racism or sexism, right, or homophobia, right? I think people are developing now inner practices which people might do, a curriculum. What's a curriculum that would align with Buddhist practice to do inner work with this as well as respond externally? That's kind of, that's part of the vision that I was speaking of, right? And people are working on that now. You know, and in fact, mindfulness is a very key tool for working through one's own conditioning. Because you can start to see it, right? And if you bring it to mind, you can start, oh, I caught you, I saw that, <laughs> right? So. Little closer. Yeah, when I saw the news footage of the kids that were confronting the Native American veteran, oh, yeah. I found myself feeling very, I became immediately reactive. And um, so I had to really take a step back and, and become mindful. And as I moved forward, I'm looking at some of the new footage that's coming up and some of the dialogue that's happening. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of like what it's like for me when, uh, you know, it's kind of like I just went whoop and I find myself doing that. Yeah. I've been putting this practice, um, practicing, practicing this. I think it's something that's going to be ongoing for me. Yeah. So great noticing. Yeah. Again, again, it points to the complexity, as I was saying, that you noticing something that, you know, some, something problematic there, right? And yet there, I'm reactive, right? So. How can we take what was important and what you noticed or saw and work through the reactivity? Not so easy. I actually hadn't seen that the videos related to the event that you were talking about, was it at the um, Lincoln Memorial, right? And I, I actually just saw it for the first time this morning. Uh, it was uh, you know, a little bit complex from what I saw, but, but uh, um, 
Yeah, so, but the point would be track the reactivity, see how to work with it, study it, and then there, and not to simply say reactivity go away, get rid of it, because there's something that could be carried that's valuable, right? Actually, King said that the heart of our movement is the constructive transformation of anger. Right? Not easy. A lot more could be said about that, but that's, that points to something, right? So, um, yeah. I really enjoyed your thoughtful discussion. And then I think about Trump. And all of my buttons go off at the same time. Yeah. I don't almost know where to put it, to work with it, because it's so pervasive. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, and there may be in our group here who are listening people who are supporters of the president, right? I don't know. Um, one key, though, is you know just generally um, something I didn't mention is that uh, you know here we would assess the level of intensity of the reactivity on a scale of one to ten, and it may be towards the nines or tens, right? So we want to know that. So. Uh, when we're really reactive, we want to, best thing to do is just to shift out of it, right? Again, to recognize that there may be a lot of uh, validity or important things in what you're seeing, how to have a response and work through the reactivity. Uh, one of the ways that we train with all of this is that we train a lot by working with reactivity that is less intense. It's the principle of all training. You don't go to the hardest things first. You do a lot of training where it's not as hard. So if you're interested in working with a higher level intensity, then do a lot of practice with lesser intensity. <coughs> do practice with stuff that's not as hard for you. And then you'll start, you'll develop the muscle more and more that will help you with the harder stuff. That's really key for the training, right? So it's a practice. This isn't some formula that we simply apply, right, to that situation. And, you know, and then, you know, the far horizon is seeing the humanity and uh, going to uh, compassion for the person, which is not easy, right? But not to go there prematurely, right? But, but it is that, you know, that's the, the vision, you know? So in teaching metta, we teach metta for the difficult person towards the end of the training. <laughs> Thank so you. just to follow up on the comment that was brought up before that one, it was interesting this morning in NPR, there was a lot of discussion that that incident was possibly manipulated to trigger the reaction. Uh -huh. One of the phrases, I don't remember exactly, but one of the women analyzing it was saying just that the sort of climate among Americans now is like we just put oxygen into a smoldering fire and it just erupts. Yeah. A lot of reactivity, yeah. And it can be manipulated, so manipulated. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know the background of that situation, but uh, um, it was a combustible mix. Yeah. Please. While we were listening to uh, Dr. King, I was thinking back to when I was, a, I was an angry teenager and what my 
what my view of Dr. King was at that time. Mm. And, uh, and when I was young, I thought of him as um, not being radical enough and therefore not being all that relevant. Mm. Uh, when, and I guess the, the, the leaders that I looked to, who I thought had the, at the time, had the, uh, the viable solutions were more the Malcolm X kind mm -hmm. of figures. And so that, I guess, allowed me to sort of look at um, my growth path over the last X number of decades, I suppose. Um, and I also thought that when, when Dr. King finally came out against Vietnam, at the time I was thinking, oh, a little too little too late. Mm. Um, and I'm not sure that that might have been the source of some of his uh, unpopularity. Mm. You had on the one hand a bunch of people on the left who I think we were probably as polarized then as today. You had a bunch of people on the left who felt he wasn't radical enough and a bunch of people on the opposite side who felt he should slow down. Yeah, yeah, very, very, very helpful points. Yeah, I mean, he was, um, he was criticized by especially many of the young African Americans as not being radical enough and criticized on many, many sides, right? And there's actually been a kind of a project in the last years to actually, um, I think results in a deeper understanding of him and that uh, I know that uh, Cornell West uh, edited a volume of Dr. King's work called The Radical Dr. King, which, which, which I've, I've read a lot of and it's, um, and people are seeing that uh, in many, of course, you know, uh, uh, in many ways he's been reduced by, for the mass of the population to have actually only having made one talk in his life, which happened to occur at the, you know, at the March on Washington, and it only had one line in it, <laughs> right? And, and a lot of his other approaches are, are not well seen or understood, so there's that as well. But he's, he's a complex figure, and I, part of what I didn't get to present today was also, there, you know, there's there's a shadow side. There's his own, his own. There are his own blind spots and so forth. Uh, but yeah, I think that uh, I think that we're in place now to have a, a a deeper understanding, especially. And again, I, what I'm suggesting is maybe that this framework that I've been presenting of this possibility of doing both of combining deep inner work with having a depth of outer response is something that's called for in our times. And I think his work plays a very, very central role. And, then, you know, it's, and, and that the core understandings, uh, you know, here I presented related to wisdom, the two arrows, the centrality of love, the centrality of integrity in one's life, that this is what unifies, this, these principles can unify our lives and can unify our practice in this way. Yeah, thank you. So let's, let's close by, um, again, remembering your intention coming out of today, whatever it is. And then offering the benefits of our morning and a little bit of the afternoon. To ourselves, to everyone in this hall, 
but then also beyond the boundaries of the hall of Spirit Rock to all beings. May, may the benefits of our lives, the benefits of our practice be offered to all beings, which includes us. Again and to be continued. I would read an intention. Let's see if we get the first two rows of two seats in a circle of 50. Everything behind me, the last two rows, everything back here, let's put those over the side. First two rows of seats in the circle of 50. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.